Hello and welcome to Comic Book Herald Tech Mania, a series running through 2022, where we'll be reading and analyzing the creator and works of writer Jonathan Hickman from his debut, The Nightly News, through to his most recent output. We'll be reading one creator own work a month through 2022. We're coming up on the end here. And each month, I'll release a new analysis with a new guest discussing the comic. Today, we're joined by Harry Casson to talk about the Black Monday murders. This is written by Jonathan Hickman, Tom Coker, Michael Garland, and Russ Wooten. Harry, thanks so much for joining. How you doing? And uh, and what should people know about you as far as your background? All right. So uh, I'm doing good. Thanks for having me on the show, Dave. Um, I am a comic book critic. I was the features editor at Comics Bookcase until we wound down the site relatively recently. And there I created the Comics Anatomy column where I and a series of guest writers over the course of the series uh, would come on, talk about visual storytelling techniques and the language of comics. that was, and I also, you know, edited a bunch of other really great features at Comics Bookcase, which you can still go read. The site's still up. Um, in addition to that, I've contributed articles to various other sites, including Comic Book Herald, and just, you know, sharing my love for comics and for specific comics with with people who are interested in reading them. Perfect, perfect. Yeah, there's a really good piece that you did with uh, with Ritesh on The Good Asian by Pornsek Pichichot, a uh, recent Harvey Award winning book uh people should check that out check that out up on cbh right now and of course the work at comics bookcase but yeah i'm excited today to talk about the black monday murders uh this is a super interesting work i think your background here is definitely gonna be great because it's definitely a comic that warrants analysis on an anatomy level on a craft level um in terms of what's going on so we're gonna get in the weeds spoilers will follow uh this is definitely gonna be an in-depth conversation like all of hickmania has been uh if you want to find you know all the previous discussions uh over the last uh nine months now of the works that we've covered, you can find those on the Hickmania playlist on the Comic Herald YouTube channel. You can find them on the Comic Herald podcast. Um, if you can't find them, I've failed in in so many ways. But just like you know, tweet me or or message me on Instagram or something, and I will point you in the right direction. But let's do it. Let's talk the Black Money Murders. This is the series that came out, started coming out in 2016, and it uh, finished coming out in 2018. And by finished. We, of course, famously have to caveat here. Eight issues have been released. They're all massive and oversized, and we're going to talk about that. But the book is not done. There are allegedly, and we'll talk about this, allegedly four issues still remaining that it seems like are probably maybe definitely going to come out at some point in the nearest future. We'll talk about some of the tea leaves there as far as when that might actually come out. But for the time being, it's an unfinished work, but it's it's very large. Eight issues that feel like, or are basically, you know, it's, it's close to like 350 pages in total. So on average, you know, that's like, you know, 16 issues, essentially, like a 16 issue run. Um, there's a certain, oh, so it's unfinished, you know, kind of attitude towards it now because the last four issues still aren't out. But like, that's a good size run. And I think because it is so dense and so creative in what it's doing, um, there's a lot, a lot to talk about. So let's start here. Okay. What is this book about? The short synopsis of it is it's a book where all the wealth and investing of the world is tied to systems of dark magic. So basically the richest people in the world who like run the banks and the investing world in kind of an alternate uh, fictional version of of our earth and our America, but 
very similar, you know, a little Watchmen-esque in that regard. Um, they all sort of worship and, and conduct these magic ceremonies to the god Mammon, the god of, you know, wealth and, and money and power. And uh, so it's a, a magic systems book, but where money is magic, almost literally. It opens New York City, October 24th, 1929, a.k.a. Black Thursday, the start of the Great Depression. And what we learn in the first issue is all the most notable market crashes in U.S. history become these isolated events in this alternate history, much like our own, that sort of define and dictate like those are the event points when major stuff goes down in the world of mammon and magic. Harry, what was your, were you reading this as it was coming out? What was your reaction to it? And just kind of overall big picture first impressions of the Black Monday. So Earth. yeah, I, I started reading this book in, in paperback when the first volume came out because I hadn't heard anything about it. And then I saw something on Twitter. They were like, finally, the first volume of Black Monday Murders is out and it's huge. And I saw that and I was thinking, okay, I like Hickman. I've, I've enjoyed Hickman in the past. I, I had read East of West and, and the Manhattan Projects and maybe Secret Wars at that point. So I was kind of on board with, with Hickman as a writer. Uh, and so I picked up the first volume just because it seemed interesting. And I read it on an airplane and I was just utterly blown away. Like I read it, I finished it on the flight and I just sat through the rest of the flight thinking like, wow, how, how did he come up with this? Where did this come from? Um, and I think it, it's, it's an important work in the Hickman canon, I think, because it's one of the notable ones for its use of data pages. Like this was sort of where he was working out how that would work. And then it, that became sort of the hallmark of his work following this. Um, and that was something that really struck me. It's, it, it adds a lot of density. Like you were saying, it's a very dense book, but a lot of that density comes from the interplay of the text pages and the graphics and the, and the actual scenes of the comic itself. Yeah. And so that was that was something that sort of blew me away on a on a formal level, um, and just sort of the 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 withholding of information from the reader. Like, there's not, despite the fact that there are these data pages explaining things, the data pages are almost entire. Like, there's some of them are explanatory documents for the reader's benefit, but a lot of them are sort of diegetic, like journals and letters and things like that. Right. Um, and that's another moment i think when it, it sort of adds to characterization as well as adding to world building and so you get this really nice interplay where you're sort of figuring out what's going on from the documents uh, but also having to read those in concert with the actual sequential scenes right right no i think that's well summarized i mean i think that is you you have to start the conversation with the black money murders around the craft of it because it is just it's the thing that will if you're a fan of comics in any capacity it is the thing that will stand out the most as far as just the uniqueness of it and the feel of it. I like the story. I like the characters in the world building. I think there's plenty there that we can talk about and dig into, but the arrangement of these issues is the thing. And just the style and the design and the choices that are being made is the thing that is the most fascinating. I mean, all of the black Monday murders, like almost 100% predicts, what House of X and Powers of Ten are going to look like, like what the entire Hickman X-Men experience is going to look like. Like that's all here in these pages. Now, as we've been reading the works since the nightly news, you know, we've seen various 
integrations of graphic design and and charts and data, of course, and timelines in Pax Romana, right? We've seen various attempts at uh, Pax Romana as well. You know, we'll do a thing where it's just like a script between characters and it's it's just dialogue, but, un, you know, undrawn, right? For Which for comics is fairly unusual. All of these things have been played with, but it has not ever coalesced into something as tight and as confident and ambitious as the Black Monday murders. I mean, the, you open that first issue and it's got a 50 page table of contents um, with redacted chapters. There's so much redaction going on in all of the copy. There's a lot of really clever sort of like text is entirely redacted except for keywords that read another sentence, you know, that is a part of it. Um, just fun stuff that, that leads to, it gives that tonal sense of secrecy and and darkness at the corners of everything which coker and garland's art and colors really really successfully capture as well um but it's just it's the most notable success of this whole thing right it's it's just i'm salivating holding a single issue because of how big it is and because of how cool it is and just like there aren't comics quite like this i mean i i, I don't want to like overstate or overhype but when you look through the most notable comics um Comics that integrate non-traditional formats and panel layouts to this extent are few and far between. I mean, Alan Moore famously uses a lot of like text and, and written word. Obviously, Watchmen is famous for this, the backups of each issue ending with, you know, this kind of ephemera that adds to the story, which I love. I love that stuff. Um, but Hickman really taps into like one of the coolest ways I've ever seen it integrated into a comic uh just merging graphic design mathematics linguistics all these things that get him compared to neil stevenson but for comics that all coalesces in this gorgeous art showcase uh harry let's talk a little bit about how so we've got text and we've got data and it's telling us some information how how successful do you think the use of that is as far as like actual narrative momentum and communicating story or does it operate for you more at a this is a cool way to make a comic level you uh, know it's, it's definitely both and part of the goal of you know comics anatomy and all of the work that i've been doing for the last few years has been really about unpacking the ways in which you cannot extricate form from content yeah. uh and so for me like it it, it would be cool a, a cool experiment an interesting idea regardless but what really makes this a sort of formal masterpiece is the way to which the team is able to make it work for the story. And I think one of the best examples of this is like you open that first issue right away. You got the table of contents. The, what, what, one of the things I actually found per, per, uh, particularly impressive was the, um, that the first issue opens with a, you know, dramatis personae and like lists all the characters and their roles. Like that's totally unusual for comics, but, but also like you said, sort of predicts what happens in the Hickman X-Men run where they had that little... Thing at the beginning of every issue with the cast of characters mm -hmm. um but then moving into the story like you said it opens on black thursday in 1929 um and there's a whole little vignette there there's a little scene and then that cuts immediately to data pages which are not you know documents from 1929 it's internet posts from you know the early 2000s talking about how to manipulate stories and one of the stories that we learned has been manipulated is the story that we just saw from Black Thursday in 1929. Yeah. Uh, and, and I think doing that 
it, it's able to fill in so many gaps while also leaving a lot up to interpretation because we see one version of events and then we hear that it's been manipulated. And so the question that we have to ask ourselves is, did we see the manipulation? Was what we just saw the lie that they've been telling? Or was yeah. what we just saw the truth that they've been covering up? And ultimately, it, it, it is the truth that they've been covering up. But you're able to see in the span of like six, seven pages, the 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 events of the day and then also the historiography of that day and then cutting back to sort of the current events, the previous, you know, still 1929 stuff after the fact. Um, but that way of sort of stepping in one page of text and sort of revising that whole moment um, was really just sort of a, a brilliant way of, of demonstrating the extent of the, the world building very, very early on. Right, right. And yeah, the, the you know, as far as the world building is concerned, like this story, because it's a story tied to the American stock market, essentially, right, and wealth management, it's a story that spans almost 100 years. Um, it's talking about, you know, in that way of like generational wealth passed down through families, you know, because we're starting, I think the earliest thing we see is 1929 with Black Thursday. And then the majority of the story takes place in what was then the present day, 2016, right? Um, so you have this group of conspirators running the world and it's families of wealth here who serve the God Mammon, right? And as the book progresses, like this is not just an idea, but like an actual antler-headed fossil god <laughs> who lives in the federal reserve right like that's it's like a that's like the magic is not it's not just like the concept like it's all there it's all happening and it's it's real as far as we can tell um hickman uses groups of conspirators in basically everything he's ever done <laughs> like like from his creator own work to his marvel stuff obviously the illuminati very famously um, on the Marvel side of things. And then of course you've got the, the house of X, you know, Magneto, professor X Moira stuff again, on Marvel side. Um, but this is all there in his creator own stuff. We have the, you know, the, the group who interprets the message in East of West, uh, and then black Monday murders. This is a, the recurring theme of, of his comics and his stories is gr small groups of massive power determining the fate of the world for their own benefit essentially, right? We see that time and time again, no matter how well-intentioned they might be, it always goes badly. Like there's not a single one of these stories, I don't think, where a group decides to do this and the ending is like, and it was awesome. <laughs> and they had a great time and they made a perfect world, you know? Like that stuff just doesn't happen. It, the other piece of this that I really like that you started talking about there is, so this book comes out in August, 2016. And there's already... On Hickman, which means he's writing it even earlier than that. I don't know exactly how much earlier, but there's already tremendous clarity on what is going to happen in America and what is happening at that point in time, which is repeating lies enough to make them the truth. Now, I know this isn't a new concept, right? But it's certainly top of mind and profiting off of that, I think in particular, again, not a new phenomenon, sadly, but certainly one that has risen in prominence. And I had definitely forgotten how much the Black Money Murders beats a book like the department of truth, you know, which does this very, very well in terms of like making conspiracies real and like making like, like people that believe in conspiracy theories, like how does that work? Like it beats that those types of stories to the, to the punch by several years. Um, and it does so very well. It's just very specifically tied to money and wealth. Uh, Harry, one thing that is, I think very impressive about the black Monday murders is 
it's a story about really rich people <laughs> who who uh, decide the fate of the world. And those are like weirdly in vogue over the last several years, you know, with like succession, billions. Um, even right now, I was just watching Industry on HBO, which is a look at like, you know, the financial sector and, and you know, kind of just like inner modern world and what that it's basically like workplace drama. But anyway, there's a lot of looks into those. They're often semi celebrations almost while simultaneously like condemning some of the specific people in the characters. How do you feel the Black Money Murders copes or or doesn't with like lifestyles of the rich and famous, you know, like in, in that sort of vein of story? I think it's interesting in that there's not we don't see a ton of them as people there's not a ton that goes into their personal lives i mean i get we I, we just get a little bit of like gregoria rothschild we get a little bit of victor oresco in terms of what their day-to-day lives look like uh we see a little bit from uh, alexi malkin right he's a professor um <clears throat> but for the most part it's everyone is at work all the time i mean i think that's that's sort of a, a hickman ism in general is that we tend to see people at work more than we see them at home yeah um but I think in to that extent, the characters in this book almost become ciphers. Like they serve purposes, but they don't mm. exist as individuals outside of a few people. Um, and I think th- that's probably intentional just in the sense that, of like, you know, it's hard to make a show about, the, you know, the rich people who run the world without making them look, you know, if not moral, if not happy, at least satisfied taken care of comfortable um and in this case i think because the the sort of the work environment the the black magic and the the actual boardroom politics and all of that is so deeply unpleasant especially as you get into the like blood sacrifice aspects of it um it it makes it look much less glamorous um like the the offices are nice and they wear beautiful clothes but they're not like living it up, going to fancy restaurants and stuff, right? Like it's pretty much right. just they're in the office or they're in the astral plane fighting for their lives in a in a blood match over wealth and money. Right, right. No, exactly. I mean, yeah, I think the most impressive thing, one of the most impressive things about the story, like the story level, is it's making finance and generational wealth exciting. <laughs> like that's hard to do do you know like again like succession like it's this window into like terrible people and what that's like this book is that but it's really not because it does it all with magic murder and mystery you know like it's kind of operating on more so on like a noirish murder mystery we have our detective theo who's kind of like the everyman investigating like what is this what are these systems of magic but then it's also like this is very much hickman's magic book um and i know this is top of mind with a lot of marvel fans who like really want to see the creator take on, you know, like a Doctor Strange or like Systems of Magic in the Marvel Universe. Um, But if you want that template, like if you want what that can and would look like, this is the book, you know, like this is the book where it's like, here's how magic works. Here's how Hickman determines like what the costs of it are. And then I think the thing that sells it more than anything and kind of the because there's there's a real darkness to this book. There's a real edge, Um, like you said, like there's blood sacrifices and just like absolute um, callousness towards like sacrificing, like, you know, people who aren't rich essentially. Right. Like it's basically just like, you know, just like there's a real class divide is too little a word. Um, But Tom Coker and and Michael Garland, the colors uh, 
sell the hell out of making these scenes that are often just conversations like dripping with menace. Um, they sell the hell out of the big moments where someone does actually burst out and do something magical. Cause that doesn't happen a lot. We don't have like wizards casting spells here. Right. Um, but you have a character like the Russian Victor Oresco who, when he uses magic, small things, just like his eye glowing him speaking in not tongues, but like a made up language, right? It's like, you know, proto Krakoan uh, dialogue and like making his lawyer bang his head on the table until he tells him to stop. Right. It is absolutely scary and menacing and terrifying and one thing i read actually was that michael garland the colorist here i guess used a palette determined from depression era paintings and art and like that's a detail that is so cool to integrate but it's not a thing i would have noticed but it's just like the colors like just the use of like gloomy reds um balanced against often just like really really i don't know like kind of calm blues a lot of times uh, everything about it just like is it's comics at its best. It's all functioning so well. Um, what what do you like or what what do you notice the most about like Coker and, and Garland together as, a, as an artistic duo? Yeah, I mean, I, I that was another thing that, that really appealed to me when I first started reading this book was just that the art was really, really beautiful and expressive. You know, the, the faces get a lot of work and a lot of detail um and everything else just sort of turns into shapes which i think is a really effective style contrast like what um like what greg smallwood was talking about in that in that Twitter thread he did where if you can contrast different styles for different things it's going to create sorts of it's going to highlight things in different ways you know so if the faces get a lot of like detail and modeling and stuff like that and other things become shapes forms colors um in, in a sort of vague way, you, you'll understand what those things in the background are, but you're not necessarily going to be giving as much attention to them as the faces, which, it, it, like you were saying, there are a lot of talking head scenes in this. And part yeah. of how to make those exciting is to really focus on that character acting. Um, and then there are just, there are lots of little touches. I mean, Hassan Atzman Elhau um, did a video on the on that interrogation scene and the color in that interrogation scene and the the sort of the back and forth of the red and the blue in that scene where the lawyer is banging his head on the table. But what yeah, yeah. always stands out to me, let me see if I can find that panel. I have my copies here. What always stands out to me is the panel where you see Victor Oresco's face and he's his eyes are completely blacked out except for two little white pinpricks and i don't know what about it is so effective but it just is terrifying to get that close up on him where all you can see are these two little white dots in his eyes um just just like really smart stuff because it's it's the opposite of what you'd be expecting normally it's white the black and then if eyes are blacked out that normally just means that they're in shadow which you know yeah. it's a it's a poorly lit room so there's the chance that it's in shadow but then there are those two little white pinpricks and that just completely throws the whole thing off because he can't just be silhouetted at that moment and so it's it's this really deeply unsettling uncanny moment uh where you kind of see the menace and the and the power behind this guy because he's been sort of biding his time up until then yeah right and this is the first moment where he in in sort of the present day, there are flashbacks where you see him like actually letting loose. But this is the first moment where you really get to see him just sort of let go and show people what he can do. And it's it's made all the scarier by by that character acting that that Coker and Garland put into it. 
Yeah, I do think it's interesting. You know, we have these. So we have these power players. Um, you know, basically the the leaders, these families of wealth that own this bank, this institution that that merged uh, East and West coming together, like America, and then like the post fall the Berlin Wall, like the the Russian kind of East Germany sectors. And so there's three characters there that are also on the board. But we rarely, it's like we know they all know about blood sacrifices. We know they're all parts of these games. We very rarely see them actually executing magic. You know, like those moments do stand out. I think like Victor Oresco, we see probably earliest because he's he's the one who gets the ball rolling. He murders the twin brother, uh, the Rothschilds. There's two twins um and he murders the brother that brings the sister home i think her name's abby uh, uh, no yeah, abby's ria gloria uh, yeah gregoria and then and then abby is the is the familiar thank you thank you and abby yeah abby's the this this i don't even know angel demon this character the, the classic hickmanism of the all-white sort of albino character woman who has lived through the centuries we learn as the book progresses like she has always been with the family but it brings them back and then they have a power play to make as well in terms of how they're connected to these cycles, how they're connected to Mammon, these market crashes. Um, there are various mysteries throughout this. So we have the detective Theo and uh, a professor at Fordham University, who is the one who he, he basically was starting to sort of crack into the secret society in these systems of magic, learned about it, and then got scared off, um, essentially. But now with Theo looking into it, he's kind of pulled back in. Um, we have that mystery of them just trying to figure out like, okay, what is this? How does this all work? What's going on? Which that is, that is the story for like us as readers, right? To be like, what is this, you know, world that we're pulled into? But then you also have the mystery of like, okay, there's a, a person on the board, Win Ackerman, who's been a player and he's missing throughout this entire series until the very, very end of as much as has been released in issue eight. As far as like mystery, as far as learning about the world goes, Harry, do you think this... So I personally, I think it's incredibly compelling. I think the biggest critique I have is probably that after the immersion and absolute clarity of the first volume, the second volume lets off the gas a bit. And because it's the last thing that we got to read for a number of years now, um, I think there are some very circular conversations that all have sort of the righteous weight and heft of Hickman dialogue, but like no narrative progression. Uh, do you feel like this story is is in a good position to enter a third and final arc or do you wish it had actually like done more with what has been presented? Well, it's, it's interesting. I was thinking about this sort of getting ready for today. I actually, I'm, I'm, I might be the minority here, but I think volume two is actually richer than the first one. Mm. The first one has a lot more, like it introduces you to the world. And so there's a lot less world building going on in the second one. Cause you're there yep. already, but there, the, the key narrative beats that I think about in terms of like, what is this series ultimately about are all in volume two. Um, in terms of, I think, like, the, the, the moment where, like, we see what Gregoria is up to, where she's not actually looking to, like, take over. She's looking to get justice for her brother who wanted out. Like, there's a yeah. whole secret story behind what happened, why she was forced out that we don't know. And that's ultimately a more compelling mystery to me than, like, who killed Daniel. Um, right. and so, so that's, that's sort of coming to the fore in volume two. Then there's the moment where, um, where uh, Theo and, and Gaddis, the professor go to the federal reserve to ask Mammon about, um, to ask Mammon about like what's going on. And the, the question, you know, Gaddis gives his life to ask a final question 
because they sort of they solve the mystery. They know for sure it's in sort of a Twin Peaks sense, like they the guy confesses, but then they're yeah. trying to figure out exactly what was going on because there's magic involved too. And then they figure out like, okay, so this guy definitely did commit the murder. And then their their questions sort of get broader because that's not a good enough answer. And so Gaddis asks like, okay, which market crashes did you cause as the god of money? And he lists all of them except for the 1987 market crash. And that's, that's yeah. where, you know, Black Monday is the title of the book. And so that's where the, the sort of the ultimate point of the book comes into focus is, wait a minute, right around the time these two banks merged, someone engineered a market crash and got away with it. And that's mm -hmm. the most compelling mystery of it all to me is what happened then that led them to like to to create this market crash because that's fascinating we always think about you know you learn in sort of classical economic studies that market crashes are inevitable there's a boom bust cycle you do your best to get through them there are multiple schools of thought in terms of how you get through them you know you could be more keynesian you could put money into it or you could be more more like hayek and you could stay out of it and let the market take its take its toll but the idea that markets are susceptible to human interference and to human sort of actions in ways that allow humans to exploit other humans rather than just humans suffering at the hands of this system or humans trying to get ahead of, at the hands of this system is really what the book is ultimately about. And so introducing that mystery in volume two was what sort of sent me down like, oh my God, I really, I need to, I need to keep going and figure out what's going on. And then to end with like, you know, Theo telling, he unravels the mystery. He goes and tells Gregoria Rothschild exactly what's going on. And then she says, all right, there's something else you want. And he says, I want in. It's, yeah. he's not the character you thought he was for all those eight volumes. And that's just yet another really, really compelling moment for me because we can see the ways in which sort of, like you said, he's the everyman. And we can see the ways in which the everyman in America wants into these abusive cycles even with the knowledge that they're abusive and destructive and that's just mm. again such a brilliant plot beat to add to the the sort of levels of, of metaphor in the book and so yeah. i think to, to your question to sort of having taken the long way around um i was a little disappointed to hear that this would be the third and final volume simply because i think volume one especially but parts of volume two are really setting up a sort of long form Hickman story like we've come to expect from him, like East of West or something like that, where we're looking at 50 issues. Um, and, and I understand that, you know, 12 issues of this is equivalent to like 25 issues of another book. Right. But it really feels like we were we were at the beginning of something. And now to hear that it was really like one, two, three act structure and we're done means that either things are going to have to end in an unsatisfying way or at least in an unresolved way or they're going to have to really really speed up a lot of the plot threads yeah yeah i think you're right so the first thing i want to talk about there that you touched on that is there's a great point is this moment in the second volume of the reveal that mammon didn't cause the 1987 market crash right in the black monday um i think this is interesting because on one hand, there's kind of like you could have the assumption that like, OK, you have this conspiratorial group. Um, they are. And the first thing we see is like as the Great Depression is kicking off in 1929, this group gets together and they all feel the market about to crash. Like they're going to make money off of this. Like they're, they're going to be fine. They're not panicking, you know, like like the day traders or whatever. Um, but they don't cause it like they don't like actively like pull that trigger. Right. They are still actually at the whims of mammoth. 
And there's an expectation that that is like the standard of how this goes, because there, you might assume that like, oh, okay, the, this group of Illuminati, they're the ones doing this. No, that's not the case with the exception of Black Monday. Um, now, I'm not an economic specialist <laughs> by any measure, uh, but I did look up like, okay, Black Monday, 1987, like what happened? There's actually a really good documentary on YouTube. If you just Google 87 Black, or a YouTube uh, a search for 87 Black Monday, there's a doc that's like 45 minutes. And one thing I learned in that was how really unusual that crash was because it's like the most epic crash in, in in epic meaning damaging in terms of like points down on the Dow that like the market had ever seen. Um, but the economy recovered in a way that like it normally doesn't like normally it does. Things don't bounce back like the way they did post 87. Um, and there's the kind of like a setup there where like, because computer algorithmic trading was like relatively new, to the floor at the time, there was an influence, an outsized influence that individuals could have on the market in this era. So like, Harry, you're talking there a little bit about like humans causing these sorts of things and how this one was engineered. I got the sense with my limited understanding that like, actually that would be the era where that was like the most possible because all of a sudden you could like, if you invested or, or took all your money out of these Dow specific stocks like you could cause these types of drops especially if you are one of these characters who has whatever insane amounts of wealth that they have um so it's not surprising that like the history would add up and that that would make sense you know that there would be some research done into that uh but i did think that was a cool additional layer that definitely i didn't understand the first time because to me it's just like okay a market crash is a market crash it leads to a recession surely they're all relatively similar it's not really the case especially with 87 black monday like if you actually look into that even just without understanding the the finance piece of it like it is unique i think and there's a reason that this book is called this and i think that was a question i wasn't even asking that then once that reveal happens i'm like oh yeah like that is the most interesting mystery and i wasn't even asking that question you know like i didn't know i was that invested in it but now i'm really curious why like why does the group need to engineer that what does that mean for them in terms of their own quest for power um what does it mean the fact that somebody was able to do that successfully outside of mammon's purview you know uh and, and like how would how are they accumulating power and magic because it there's a sense that these conspirators this group of wealthy individuals are trying to like get around mammon like they don't want to be under mammon's thumb and have to because they one of the there's four chairs you know you have seats on this council essentially right and the stone chair is this one where you have to wear that like an albatross and then if a market crash happens it's like it's like a board game rule it's like if a market crash happens while you're in the stone chair you are sacrificed you die like that's one of the first things we see um is this wealthy individual just covered in ciphers and black magic and oozing blood and stuff right the characters are trying to get around that it seems like they're trying to avoid that um i have to think those things are connected and i'm really curious what that's going to look like. I don't know, Harry, do you have any theories or, or thoughts or things about all that? Yeah, I mean, I think part of this is we have to start bringing Hickman into the conversation. I, as much as I'm loath to to sort of assign intentions to him from this book, because I think he's he's a very cryptic in, individual in his, in his writing. It's very hard to see where he is in all of it. But I think yeah. there's a sort of deep skepticism about the rules of finance in this book. And, and sort of, you see it at the beginning, right, with Victor Oresco's speech to all those students at Columbia. He's talking about, like, 
you know, your first million you'll make with your own sweat and blood. And this is something that's true in the world of finance. I, I like a brother of a friend of mine went to work at Goldman after college and he was talking about like, you know, you sweat out your first million, you don't sleep, you don't eat, you just work, 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 work until you have a million dollars. And then you can start making real money. And that's what Victor Oresco says. He says, you make that first million on your own back, you bleed it. And then you're going to think that that's how you make the rest of your money. But if you want to make serious money, what you start doing is you start bleeding other people. Hmm. And, and, and then there's the later conversation about like wealth isn't just money. It doesn't come from, you know, making movies. It doesn't come from banks. It doesn't come from entrepreneurship, real wealth, real power comes from the earth. And there's this sense that, you know, the ways in which we think about money, the ways in which we talk about money are just wrong because the idea that, you know, the, the wealthiest people are, like, you know, we, we give, we accord celebrities sort of outsized influence in our culture. And we talk about them as if they're the sort of the, the people with the power. And to a certain extent, they are. I'm not going to discount the, the effects of celebrity. But if you look at, you know, like the, the richest people in the world, you might recognize five, six of those names. Like, you know, there was that list of yeah. like the richest person in every U.S. state. And I knew maybe five names. And that's because the real wealthy people are not famous. They're not flashy they just have a shitload of money am i allowed to say that <laughs> yes in that context <laughs> um and then and then they and then they exercise that power and you never you never know who they are and, and that's right. sort of what's going on in in this book and so to look at that and you know to to, to to get into sort of economics territory a little bit i took a couple of econ classes so i think i have a rudimentary understanding of this but the, the way yeah, that's better, that's better than I'm bringing to the table. So by all means, the, the way that money works in the broadest sense is that money is created by banks, whether that's, you know, private banks working on as an arm of the state or the state in, in general. And we see sort of both of those because Cana is the state bank of the USSR for, for a while. And so that's where they come from or not Cana, that's Cancrin. Cana is, is the, is the American, the American one where they're sort of just a private bank that's been around for a really long time. Um, and so they create money and that's all debt is, is money that has been created that has not then been returned. Mm -hmm. And so you get a real sense that if the banks are creating money that we all get, and ultimately we give it back to them and it gets wiped from the books, where does their money come from? And that's where Mammon comes in. And so they all, yeah. all of the wealth, all of the power they have has been borrowed from Mammon. And so when he collects his due, if you're in the stone chair, that's it. That's how you pay him back. Um, and so they're trying to get around that. And there's, that's, I think what's so sort of blasphemous about them manufacturing that 87 crash. If that was them is that if you're manufacturing a crash as a way to steal a bunch of money in plain sight, which it sounds like, you know, that's what it looked like was going on in 87 with those sort of weird fluctuations that didn't cause, like, where did that money come from? If it, if it didn't cause long-term economic problems, yeah. It looks, you know, in the in the book, the book's answer, I think, is that it was stolen. And then if, if you use the book's logic, it was stolen from the god of money, uh, yeah. which which is kind of a an excellent hook for for this kind of story is that like, this is where money comes from. It comes from the devils in the earth and you earn it by sacrificing your blood. And then someone executed a heist where they stole a bunch of money from God. 
See, and it's so funny, like, you articulate that incredibly well. That doesn't come through until, like, what, issue six, issue seven? You know what I mean? Like, this book could have started there. Um, I don't know that it's wrong that it didn't. I love this book. I really, really do. Um, I think it's so, so fascinating. But it's it's very funny to me that that doesn't come through clearly until as late as it does. You know what I mean? Because that could have been the, the log line. That could have been the pitch. Um I, you're right. You're you're winning me over on the sense that like, it's so cool that that gets revealed when it does, and that actually is in and of itself an incredible push to the narrative momentum to introduce that mystery and to get us invested in that piece of things. I think honestly, the first time I read it, I think I just didn't really understand the weight of that. You know, it kind of just felt like okay, so one of those wasn't manufactured by Mammon. Like, what does that mean? Like that's that's not a question that the book is like holding your hand to give you the answer on, you know? And, uh, and now that as we talk about it and as I thought about it again, rereading it, like it's, it's clearer to me, the implications of that. And I think it's a lot more exciting. I mean, I do think like narratively this book taps into something really brilliant and meaningful in crafting a system of magic and horror around wealth and finance. Like there's a, there's a believability and a, a realness to that, that is kind of unshakable, you know, cause there's a part of me that like, I just, I understand it very poorly and I look at investing in the world of billionaires and I'm just like, I don't get it. I don't understand. There's this magic illusion of monopoly money, right? Like it just all feels like, you know, talking about like, oh, the banks make it up. And it's just, it's just like all these systems playing games of like making up money and value. And you know what I mean? And when you don't understand it, it all feels like an illusion. And, and that is what this book is doing very literally. There's a line here. I think it might be in the first issue. It's probably Oresco saying something of like, you know, the magic illusion of money and the quote is, oh, how the poor love the lie, right? They love this lie of like the reality and the, the tactileness of money. Um, but the, the people at the top understand that it's like it's a concept. <laughs> it's just, you know, it's like a fake thing. Um, and again, like if you take the magic and the rituals out of this, this probably feels like the most grounded work that I think Hickman no, no, not necessarily. Like, I don't want to put it in those terms. But certainly if you compare it to his epics, Manhattan Projects, East of West, this is very grounded <laughs> by comparison, right? This is just yeah. a look at systems of wealth and finance. And, you know, you talked about we don't want to prescribe, oh, the author thinks this or whatever. Um, but I do think there's a lot – there's probably a lot more personal conviction put into how Hickman views the world in this book. I have gathered, I would assume, um, than, than something like even like in East of West, which is very personal, but on an emotional level, this feels very personal, but probably more so on a, we're all at the whims of these rich maniacs, you know, like we are controlled by money level, just kind of view of the world, you know, may or may not be true, but that's the vibe I get. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, that's one of the, the strengths of this book actually is that I think part of it, it, it works because people don't necessarily understand finance. And so if you're like, yeah, man, it's all, it's all black magic and blood sacrifices. And you're like, okay, sure. Yeah. Believe me. <laughs> yeah, right. It makes as much sense as anything else. Um, yeah. And, and I think at, at the, at the, the very real level, like there, there is like money is a concept. And, and I mean, I talk about this all the time. I believe in the idea of money as a store of value. Like if I have bread today and I want meat next week, 
you can't just barter that straight up. You need some form of an IOU, right? I give someone the bread today and then they tell me that they'll give me meat later. And that's so that's sort of where money comes in. But the mm -hmm. idea of money as finance, as capital, as this thing that has its rules and an ecosystem like that's that's completely made up. And so in this book, you get a very sort of clear articulation of like, yeah, sure, there are rules, but they a we don't know about them and we're not playing the game and be like it is sort of predicated on on, on nothing like it's it's an illusion it's conjuring um but the, the other thing i think is that it does something that horror the some of the best horror is able to do this and a lot of times when other horror tries to do it and fails it comes off sort of really insincere but the, there's an there, there's he's scared of finance he's scared of money and he's writing a book about that fear and so to then see it like it, it's it's both literal and metaphorical is, is the mm -hmm. and it, it, it doesn't really pick yeah. aside like, yes, the, the black magic is literal. They are literally sacrificing people to the God of money to create their wealth. But then at the same time, each sort of step in the chain is allegorical to the way in which real world finance works. Um, and so I think that's what's so satisfying about this book is that yeah. you can sort of engage in the the sort of grotesqueries of of the of the blood rituals that they're performing and like understand that like this is literal witchcraft. Um, but then at the same time you're looking at it and you're like, okay, but I can see the parallels. I can see right. how this relates to the actual world of finance. And, you know, they're not literally bleeding people dry, but they may as well be because that's the effect yeah. it has on the world. And so I think that's, there's that sort of dual understanding that you get when you, when you read this book that, that exists, you know, I mentioned Twin Peaks earlier. That's another perfect example of like, it's spoilers for Twin Peaks, but, but, uh, Leland as, um, as as rapist leland as victim but also leland as possessed by a ghost and there's that line you know maybe bob is the evil that men do that sort of articulates like he's a metaphor he he's literal in the sense that he exists in this story but he's also a metaphor for the kinds of evil that go on in the world that that leland is ultimately still accountable for he's not off the hook because he was possessed right. in, in this moment and i think that's sort of the space in which black monday murders exists as well yeah yeah no i think it's really well said I, I think it's definitely all true um okay before we i let's talk because you touched on it as well a little bit you know all indications are there'll be four more issues um a third and final volume just like an update on the information that is out there at this point in time uh hickman has said all of them are written all four of the next issues are written he said this on a, a substack stream within the last probably year and a half um the book paused, it went on hiatus because I, I believe my understanding was Tom Coker had some health issues. Um, it seems like he has since recovered or or is back and working, certainly, um, and has indicated some fairly significant process on his Instagram. So it really might just be a matter of timing. I think the thing that was said is like image won't put them out until all four are done, which honestly good. <laughs> like I would it would be frankly very unsatisfying to have months long delays. Um as far as whether they'll come out, will there be four more issues? Will there be just a trade? I feel like with a book like this, you'd want to do the issues because they're so meaty and because, I mean, if I'm an image, I expect these to sell pretty well. Um, but I guess we'll see. But it does sound like everything is like done or close to done. So I feel like we can anticipate uh, some sort of announcement in the next 
who knows when, but like, it feels like that could be coming, which is exciting. Like I, I really am eager to read this third conclude, like this third volume and have a conclusion to this story. Um, because again, like I, I am blown away by this book. I'm blown away on a craft level. It is very immersing. Um, I have it ranked very highly as one of my favorite. It's in my top hundred, like favorite comics of all time. Um, but I can't like, I have East of West super high in my top 30. I can't bump it up to that until, till it finishes like there's just in the back of my mind it's like i gotta wait and kind of see what comes of this because the third volume could be the coolest volume yet like based on the mysteries we're talking about and these sorts of things like it could reveal things that make the first eight issues make more sense add some clarity to those you know and that's the thing too when when you're dealing with a style of comic that deals in redacted text and secrets right there's a lot of mystery just around like why are you being secretive about that thing I don't know in some instances and the third volume could make some of those things pay off in ways that I don't even know to be asking, right. That I don't even know to be expecting. And that's exciting. Um, so it could just be a tonal thing, but it could also be like, Oh, there's a secret there that, that he's revisiting. One thing that as a writer Hickman has enjoyed doing a ton. We see this in East to West a lot. We've seen it in some of the X-Men stuff is revisiting sequences and adding and fleshing them out in greater detail. I think the Black Money Murders is incredibly ripe for that. Um, whether or not that will be an approach that is taken, you know, it remains to be seen. But I think there's a lot of like, hey, remember when? And because it's been a long time, you know, for a lot of readers, especially if we get an issue nine suddenly three years after the first, you're going to need that sort of, oh, yeah, right. That, that's what happened. And, and now we're seeing more of that scene. Um So, yeah, so nothing to report, certainly. Um, I do have, fingers crossed, hopes. That, uh, that I have an interview coming with with Tom Coker that's, that's in the works. So we'll see if we can get maybe some updates that way. Um, but I'm, I'm super excited about the possibility of this book actually coming out. I don't know. Harry, where, where, where are you at as far as like white whales of comics that like <laughs> you want to you get out in the world? Like because Black Money Mirror is pretty high up there for me to see this one finish. Yeah, I mean, you know, some of mine are like the sort of legendary things that you're like, we're like, there, there's no more big numbers. We're never getting more big numbers. No, um, no, it's like not that, one, that one's completely dead. And I'd love to see it because I actually think it's weirdly like resonant with Black Monday murders, just having read the mm. first couple issues. Um, Interesting. It's, it, you know, it's about. It's hard to find comics that, that are of a piece with Black Monday murders. That was one, because often when I'm reading comics, I want to read other things in, in the sphere that are speaking that language, right? Black Monday murders is really hard. You know, you can't, it's hard to Google like comics about magic money. <laughs> like, what is that? You know, what is that search? Well, I mean, that's, you know, big numbers. If you can stomach reading the first two issues of a 12 issue series that will never be completed, uh, the, the third issue is available online. You can find it. It was drawn, but then never released. Um, so there are scans of it. You can, you can read And this it. is, this is more in Sienkiewicz, yeah? More in Sienkiewicz, and then more in Al Columbia, who was Sienkiewicz's assistant on the first two issues. He drew the third, and then ultimately he drew the fourth and then destroyed all the original pages before anyone else could see them. Wild. Uh, There's a whole story behind that one. But but Big Numbers is about the, the it's you know, it's classic more wizardry, but it, the, it focuses on this small English town where this American company wants to build a giant mall. And the sort of metaphysical stuff it hasn't really come into focus by the end of the second issue and so i'm not really sure where it was going with this broadly but there is this sort of idea of like the the cultural and and like cultural magic of colonizing the english countryside with giant shopping centers 
um, which is of a piece, I think, not identical to Black Monday murder, certainly more particular, um, but but similar feeling, similar mystery, though a, a much more intense focus on people sort of acting at the sort of lower levels of, of, of the, of the operation. Like you get a little bit about some of the people working for the mall, but it's mostly about the people living in this town. Whereas I think Hickman in general and black Monday murders in particular tends to focus on the sort of great men theories and deconstructing them to certain extents, but it's really about the sort of highest level players on a global scale. Are you ever bothered by in, in Hickman's work? Cause this is the thing that's come up in a lot of them, like the emphasis on spectacle and plot over character you know, because I like, again, it's one of those things where I actually tend to give him as a writer a little more credit than I think a lot of fans in terms of like defining characters and having unique voices. Um, but a lot of times, you know, you said it earlier, they can feel just like a mouthpiece. They can feel just like a cipher for an idea as opposed to individuals. Where do you stand on that? Um, I, I'm a big conceptual person, so it doesn't tend to bother me in, in, in most cases. Um, but I, I, I totally understand why it bothers some people. Like you, you, if you need a character to latch onto and you're having a hard time doing that, like these can be books that might feel inaccessible then because you don't really have an anchor. And there's a lot of sort of ping pong around from player to player and moment to moment and sort of all bridged by these data pages. And so it can become very di- sort of disjointed if you're not anchored. But yeah. I, I think like you, I actually give him a fair amount of credit for defining characters. I, I know I said that a lot of these characters become ciphers in Black Monday Murders. But I think, you know, Gregoria, for example, gets a tremendous amount of characterization. Win Ackerman, even though he's absent until the last four pages, you get a huge selection of his journals that give you so much insight into, like, who this person is, how right. he acts, what he's thinking about. And so I think it's they, they become representations of larger systems. But I think part of part of the, the sort of the manifest subject matter of Black Monday murders is the way in which human individuals with human wants and desires and and just like they they become representations servants vassals to these larger systems these larger powers i mean you see that in the sort of flashbacks through the rothschild family family history where you know we see the milton rothschild the sort of the the leader of the family from 1929 up until very late in the 20th century um he's um he sort of admonishes his son for for marrying outside of his class, for having twins, and sort of disowns him, kills him. And that's a moment where, like, we can see who Milton is, what his needs are, what his desires are. We can see what the son's desires are, and we can see those two things in conflict because Milton has built himself up to be this sort of perfect representation of this system that he is a part of, and his son doesn't want anything to do with that. And then we see that again with Daniel and Gregoria, where she wants the power and the 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 sort of the control that comes with being a part of the of the Kana board, and Daniel wants out, and that gets ruined, you know, in in a sort of abrupt betrayal during this whole merger process with with Cancrin. but but there are sort of yes, they are representations, yes, they are cogs in a machine, but they also we can see the ways in which that's at, at tension, at odds with their wants and desires as, as humans and as individuals. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I do feel like it's pretty telling that, you know, Daniel is dead from issue one. Um, and we see a limited amount in flashback, but primarily through journals, through email communication, we get a sense that Daniel 
is the only altruistic person in this entire narrative, essentially, had actual philanthropic goals um, in conjunction with the security, head of security, uh, Tom Dane, in this book. And in we actually get a surprising amount of like, oh, yeah, of course, like the one maybe okay <laughs> player in this scene, um, or at least the one who had some goals of, of literally sharing the wealth. Um, that's the one who gets killed, right? That's the one who gets taken out. Like that, that philosophy that mentality that is cannot be a part of you know the council of mammon or whatever it is you want to call them yeah uh yeah you know yeah go ahead no i just think i i want to weigh in on this because it's something that comes up when talking about this book but i think it's really important that the people talk about this book as being super anti-semitic because it's you know in some ways it's kind of the blood libel right you know they've got the people who run all the banks and mm. then they commit blood sacrifices to get their power and then it's literally the rothschilds yeah. Um, which, you know, it can be a, a little dicey at times, but I think it's important that the, mm -hmm. the Rothschilds are the ones who are the most human in this. They're the, they're the they're the ones who you see first and foremost. You get the most of their backstory. You get a lot, a lot of information about who they are as people. And they're the ones who are the sort of the, the human ones, the altruistic ones, like you were saying. And we're not sure where Gregoria stands on that. Does she want the power still? Does she want to burn this whole thing to the ground for personal reasons, for altruistic reasons? Um but it's interesting if you look in the background material of, of volume one, there's a character design for, for Gregoria and it's, she's listed as Gregoria Ackerman on the sketch. Oh, and it stood out to me. I only noticed that reading it again, but I think they might've been planning to have Gregoria be an Ackerman and having Gregoria Daniel be Ackerman. And then they realized like, Oh wait, we probably can't have the like scheming bankers be the Rothschilds. We got to shuffle this a little bit and we humanize them so that we're, we're not, you know, casting aspersions about Jews. I, I don't know if we ever came to any sort of understanding on whether or not Hickman is, is Jewish. I, I know there was a lot of speculation about that because of Krakoa and its parallels to Israel. Uh, but to me, this feels like a, a sort of bigger, a bigger moment to sort of ask, questions about what Hickman is doing in relation to like tropes about Jews in, in stories, especially because it is about banking and blood magic. Um, That's interesting. Yeah. I had not, I had not thought about that. Um, I would be fascinated to definitely want to engage with more criticism and commentary around that from folks who, who understand it well, as far as what this book is doing there. I think one thing, as you're saying that I'm kind of like, this book does have a ton of, of old Testament biblical, illusions right like as far as the the demons and and gods that are being worshipped they are biblical in nature they're just outside of you know like the the beings that are typically worshipped <laughs> right um but it's stuff that comes from the bible right so as far as like the relevance of it i do feel like yes there's probably a lot more going on there um with judaism i it, the book doesn't engage in that conversation like it's not it's definitely, it never comes up. I mean, I don't think literally no, ever. No, 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 it de so, definitely doesn't. It's all a subtextual sort of understanding. And I've seen people yeah. accuse this book of being grossly anti-Semitic. And I just wanted to sort of step in and say, yeah, there are some moments where it may not be the the, the most sensitive, but I think there is there is textual evidence that they are doing their best to not play into those tropes. And to yeah. what extent it's effective, I think it's incredibly effective, personally. I'm very convinced by by the, the sort of existence of Daniel Rothschild and Gregoria Rothschild as as not you know beneficial actors, because they're still obscenely wealthy, but certainly of the people in their orbit, they are the most sort of benign, they are the most sort of 
benevolent is as, 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 yeah. as I'd go in describing their motivations. Yeah, which is a tricky one because you do, you know, one of them ends by eating a human heart. <laughs> so it's like, you know, benevolence can, can only go so far. But that, that's a really interesting and, and fair criticism. I, I would definitely, I'm going to look that up and, and see if I can find some more on that. Um, okay, so Black Monday Murders, I think we've covered it. Is there anything we didn't talk about that you want to make sure that we touched on? Um, things that you noticed rereading it, things that really stood out to you, it can be craft, it can be narrative, any other just on a craft level, we've talked a lot about Hickman. We've talked a fair amount about Tom Coker and and uh, and and Michael Garland. I just want to throw Russ Wooten a bone here because I think he's an excellent letter. And this was really the first book that made me notice his his work in particular. I feel like the it's he's he's you know Hickman's go to at this point, so it's not shocking to see his work in a Hickman book. But the sort of the the thin tales with the even taper. Um, are really effective, and the the mixed case lettering, which I know is a Hickman favorite, um, gives a sort of academic standing uh, mm. to a lot of this. And so, I you know I joke about myself being an egghead all the time, and this really does feel like a comic book for eggheads. Yeah, um, yeah. and it's it's sort of outwardly embracing that um, really went a long way towards making me understand the amount of thought and, and interpretation and analytical work that the book wants you to bring to it. Um, and so I think it's just, it's, you know, really smart creative choices all the way down from highlighting the horror to highlighting the sort of higher level economic concerns addressed in this book. Uh, it's just, it's, it's really sharp, uh, thinking from from everyone on the team, and I just wanted to make yeah. sure that we highlighted Wooten's contributions because I think they're 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 of paramount importance to this title. That's a great call out. You know, I was I was thinking in the sequence when Mammon is speaking to the um, to the individuals who come in the Fed Reserve, all of his di all of Mammon's dialogue is you know cipher, right? It's all this made up language. Um, how hard that would be to letter <laughs> you know i was thinking like you don't have text like you just have these weird shapes and symbols um you have to and i don't even know like like when like with kirk cohen or even like with um the three world stuff that they're doing now they have like alphabet translation you know for these symbols that they're using black money murders there's we never get that there's no data page I, I was trying, you know, it's one of those things where like I'm looking at it and I'm trying to get a feel for like okay does this symbol mean this thing and i i don't have a sense of it Wooten's reusing symbols, but he's doing it sporadically enough that it's not like it's not like lorem ipsum. You know what I mean? Like so, there's like there is a creativity and a, a challenge, I think, to that. And then you know he's he's lettering with those symbols in sequence with brilliant design of the God Mammon and just that whole court scene by Coker and Garland. Like everything about it is demonic without with somehow not taking you out of the whole tone of this book. Like that that could be the most jarring sequence of the entire narrative is okay they go into the federal reserve in the basement and now there's like characters that are actual demons and these sort of anthropomorphized skeletons essentially i could feel almost goofy in a way um i don't think it ever does i think it, it really works i think there's a, a tremendous tension the entire time and uh yeah i just I, I fully agree that when you talk about the sharpness of this I just like it's it's this genuinely rare experience of everything that makes good traditional comics. Just all the players playing together, the book looks great, plus equal weight in data pages and and sometimes completely incomprehensible theories of magic, but they're super fun and they fit the tone and the vibe of what this book is and wants to be. I would say at this point in time, it is like the pinnacle of Hickman's gifts as like a comics creator. Um, not, not literally his best work, although you could say that, and I, I wouldn't really fight you on it, 
Um, but it looks at the medium and it's like, what else could we do with comics? And it answers that question, I think, in some really fascinating ways. And I think a lot of times those are the most interesting books to me um, are ones that even even if they fail, and I don't think Black Monday Murders does, but even if they do, it's a comic that is like, what's a way we can move the medium in directions it hasn't really gone before or not in this way? Um, and I love it for that. Really, really enjoyed it. Yeah, totally. I, I mean, that's a sort of complaint that gets lobbed against Hickman sometimes, where it's like, well, data pages show a failure to accommodate the medium or something like that. But comics, including text pages, has been around forever. And frankly, they're so much, they're so well integrated here that it almost, it never feels like an imposition. Like I know people who read Watchmen and they're like, I skipped the text pages. It's a lot because it's like eight or nine pages of text. But for these, it's like uh, two pages of graphs or like one page of bullet points or something like that. It goes by relatively quick. It does take you out of the story, but I think that's intentional because they're they're used to create transitions between scenes. This was a thing that um, Hassan Atzman Elhow pointed out in his video on um, on House of X was that yeah. um, the the data pages never come mid scene and they always represent a transition from one scene to another. And it's right. it's a it, you know opening. It, it's it's actually it's almost very theatrical in that way where it you know it opens with a dramatis personae. There are these sort of down like blackout lights up moments between scenes. And I think that's a direction like theater comics as theater is a direction that doesn't get explored very yeah. often. There's, you know, DeLuca famously with the Shakespeare adaptations and the DeLuca effect creating a sort of theatrical stage on the, on the, on the two page spread where the characters are walking around and you can see them moving through space. That that's a very famous example, but I think this sort of incorporates the, the movement, the, the, the pacing of theater in, in yeah. interesting ways. And I think that, the, the data pages to me feel incredibly fresh in, in their use here. Yeah, I totally agree. It, it is interesting to folks that they don't work for, you know, I, I suppose because they, they are kind of jarring, I guess, in the sense of like, well, this isn't how comics work, right? Like there's that, there's that sort of like, this is different and, and I don't like it. Um, and, and that can be a valid, certainly point of view. Uh, but it is like, as pacing goes, I do think they're very effective um, to stop, Definitely someone like me. So like, you know, I read too many comics and that sometimes when that happens, like you can read them too fast <laughs> and like, you're not taking it all in. And I actually think the data pages, they pace you out in such a way that they kind of make you focus back in, you know, it's kind of that moment of like, oh, okay. Reading, not looking at art. Now I flip to the art. I'm like actually more attentive to detail when I get back to it, I would say. Um, plus I just think it's a super inventive way of communicating things. It's also, it's incredibly hard to do. You know, I mentioned earlier that like there aren't a ton of examples throughout history of things that do this. You know, obviously we talk about Watchmen, we talk about the works of Alan Moore, uh, Legion five years later, the Keith Giffen project, you know, definitely uses this very Watchmen influence. Um, Eric Stevenson written Nowhere Men, you know, image comic series is inspired by this. I'm sure there are plenty of others, um, but it's a hard thing to do. Like if it wasn't so difficult to pull off, you'd see more creators attempt it, <laughs> I think. And uh, it it's... There are moments where I look at a data page and I'm like, I'm baffled by it. And, and I'm like, I don't know what this is adding. But those are sparse. Generally, it's informative and, like you said, building character. Like everything we know about Win Ackerman is because of the use of data pages, right? And so the reveal of that character by the end of the mystery only has any sort of interest to me because of the use of that, if we didn't have that, 
we'd be like, oh, there's the other guy. And it wouldn't it wouldn't mean as much. I don't think uh, nearly as much. So, yeah, I'm I'm super pro that style. Um, but again, it's, you know, X-Men comics are a great example right now because the data pages became like a a stylistic tick of the line and they aren't always required. Right. Like like I think Hickman as a creator is someone who kind of pioneered the that specific use in this way. Not every creator kind of gets it. You know what I mean? And it is interesting con- having the contrast of other creators trying the same thing and seeing when it works versus when it doesn't. Because it's not like a, that's not like that in and of itself, like anything, that tool is not just going to like unlock some special meaning. Yeah. Book, right. I'm not reading a ton of the X-Men books right now. I've been sort of saving them for, for trades. Though, you know, to Hickman's credit, I was never an X-Men reader before. And then House and Powers, like that was sort of my awakening moment. I was like, oh, this is interesting to me now. Um, sure. That was that was a big thing for me. But um, but I think Gillen's use of, of the data pages in Eternals has been really, um, really exciting for me. I've, I've been really enjoying that. Yeah. Because I think part of part of what makes them effective is finding a voice for them and so hickman's voice is this very detached like they're because they're some of them are diegetic documents but they're never presented as diegetic documents um you know they they exist this is another hassan point from the house of x video but they exist sort of at the same level as the credits pages in terms of their design and and so they they exist outside of the stream of the narrative um which i think is an important distinction yeah um And it's got this very detached voice. It's this sort of authorial third person narrator, unless they're diegetic, you know, in which case there's there's an in-universe author behind them. But a lot right. of the ones where it's like explaining the structure of um, explaining the structure of the American school of economics or something like that, that is this sort of authorial third person narrator. It reads like a textbook. You're not sure who's producing it, if there is an in-universe explanation, but there's a chance that these are not documents that the characters could encounter in their lives right um, whereas gillen has has found this voice of like the snarky voice of the earth machine that runs the eternals cycle and like that's that's what's working for him and i think that's that's a very important part of this too is figuring out what the rules are for for your data pages because that's going yeah. to make them more engaging for people and it's going to help people read them because it's just there's a level of consistency there yeah, I love that. Well, and it's such a it's such a sci-fi influenced maneuver too, because like you know whether we're talking Foundation with like Encyclopedia Galactica, or um, Dune, obviously a huge influence on Hickman with you know uh, Princess Erlon in in the the first book. Um, yeah, like just having voices outside, whether they're from characters in the universe or you know Hickman's often read like yeah I don't know like a like a like a weird Wikipedia <laughs> like no one has access to there's that explicit you know the beginning of the that first data page that you encounter after the scene of of the um of the depression you know in nineteen twenty nine that one is sort of about Wikipedia you know that's their like we're gonna get together and create you know fact checking websites that we so that we can disseminate lies yeah and then yeah. That it's a it's a really bold way to start off your data pages because now we exist at the understanding that maybe the data pages we're reading are their lies. You know, maybe that's what they want us. It's it's you know in the same way that it undercuts the narrative that immediately preceded it. It also undercuts all of the data pages that follow because we don't actually right. know is this the truth? Is this a lie? Is this coming from the same place? Um, and it's it's just a really interesting formal move to to sort of undercut yourself at the very beginning of your ongoing series. Yeah. 
Yeah, no, it's interesting. It's very interesting. All right, very cool. So I think we've talked about it um, in, in sufficient detail. Again, this is a highly recommended read. Hopefully, hopefully, there will be um, four final issues in the not-too-distant future, and more people can enjoy this as a whole thing. Again, it's a, it's an incredibly smart, sharp work. Um, it is is hugely influential on the state of, like, I mean, certainly Marvel Comics um, right now and probably more. So, all right, Harry, this was awesome. Where uh, where should people find you? Where should people look for your stuff? So if you want to find me, I'm I'm on Twitter. That's sort of my main place where I talk about comics right now. I'm at Lee Kassen, uh, L-E-E-K-A-S-S-E-N. Uh, you can also find my work at comicsbookcase.com, where I was the features editor and wrote the comics anatomy column. And you can find my writing in various outlets, such as Comic Book Herald and early issues of Panel by Panel, and probably some new stuff coming out relatively soon. So find out about that on Twitter. Um, thanks so much for having me on. This has been this has been great. Awesome, awesome. Yeah, thanks for joining. It was super fun. Uh, I'm of course Dave. You can find my stuff at Comic Book Herald if you like the conversation here. Uh, we're going to keep going here with with the rest of the Ovoir. There's not a ton left. Uh, we're going to talk about decorum. We got a cool guest to come on for that. And then the final month of the year, we're going to do a look at Hickman's current project, uh, all the three worlds, three moon stuff. I do actually have copies of finished books at this point <laughs> to review. So the timing there is pretty good. Um, but we got a couple more coming. But if you like stuff, you know, like, subscribe, share, all that fun stuff, and uh, follow along at Comic Book Herald. So thanks, everybody, for listening. And as always, enjoy the comics. <laughs>